Hello everyone, I'm back again. Please excuse us if we are a little bit unnatural because we are used to looking at people, but now we are actually looking into a camera. Uh, I feel more like a, a reporter, a journalist than a pastor. So I'm going to bring a sermon to you now. Let me begin with uh, some statistic to put some things in context. The Ebola ravaged West Africa between 2014 and 2016, uh, caused about 11,325 deaths. The uh, H1N1 swine flu pandemic, which is 2009 and 2010, killed between 150,000 to 550,000 people. Uh, HIV, it's a pandemic at its peak, 2005 to 2012, death toll was 36 million people. The Black Death in the 14th century, in a period of just about seven years, killed about 50 million people. And 60% of Europe's entire population was wiped out. And in 9 11, in 2001, killed about 2,977 people. In the recent tsunami, 2004, killed 230,000 people. COVID-19, till date, I just checked this morning, about 13,000 plus deaths. How many more? Who knows? Who knows? But in this time of uh, challenging times, many people are filled with fear. Some years ago, Dutch researchers conducted an experiment in which they told one group of people that they are going to receive 20 strong shocks into their body. 20. And then they told another group of people that they are only going to receive three strong strokes, but 17 miles one but it will come randomly. So the second group of people actually do not know when these three strong shocks will come into their body. And the researchers discovered that the second group of people, those who were told that they will only receive three strong sh shocks, sweated more and they experienced faster heart rates than the first group of people that were told that they will receive 20 strong shocks into their body. It was the uncertainty that caused their discomfort and not the intensity of the shocks. And so commenting on these studies, a Harvard psychologist says that an uncertain future leaves us stranded in an unhappy present with nothing to do but wait. But as Christian, I don't quite like that kind of way of conclusion, even though with uncertainty, but there is certainty in God. So this morning, what I'd like to do is I will do away with my, the fit conclusion of my uh, series on discipleship essentials. This is what I want to do. I want to, I want to really look at how Christians should respond, how you as believer, you as a disciple of Christ, you are mature Christian, how you as a Christian should respond to this crisis. I, 
I put down three letters. I say, you must respond like a pro. P-R-O, as in professional. You must respond like a pro. P-R-O, let me just give to you what it stands for first, in case you need to go off or something like that. I, I won't be able to see you going off or have breakfast or go back to sleep. But uh, let me tell you, P-R-O, I want you to respond like a pro. P is that you must have a proper godly Christian perspective to this issue. So that's the first point. And the second one is R. I want you to know with great certainty that God is your refuge. And thirdly, O, I want to bring across to you that in this time of crisis and challenging time, we have great opportunities. So perspective, refuge, and opportunities. First one, perspective. I want you to have the perspective that God is in charge of your life and not coronavirus. I want you to not only know, but absolutely convince and believe wholeheartedly that your life is in the hand of God and not in the disease. You must know that God is in charge and not the disease. While we can take precaution and be careful, uh, adhere to the government regulation and all that, but fear should not cripple you. George Whitefield, the 18th century cleric and evangelist, he says, we, you and I, we Christians, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. Take care of your life and the Lord will take care of your death. So I want you to have this strong, good, godly perspective that God is in charge. God is sovereign, not the situation. He is in charge. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 19, sorry, no PowerPoint, you do quickly open up your Bible and turn to it, or your iPhone or whatever. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, the entire four chapters in the book of Philippians is about rejoice, about being joyful. But bearing in mind that in the situation, Paul was actually languishing in prison. Despite of the situation that he was in, there was deep joy that still filled his heart. That he was able to write these joyful letters to the Philippians Christians. Was he angry? No. Was he upset? No. Was he bitter or resentful? No. Was he joyful? Absolutely yes. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, that Paul has this great perspective to things. As a Christian, they are viewing the world, evaluating the world through the lens of God's Word, through the lens of having a relationship with God. Look at what he said in verse 19. Remember, he's in prison and he says this, I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, which is in prison, will turn out for my deliverance. He never blamed God. He never asked God why. He simply just said, well, I'm in prison. But it, you know what? I know that it will turn out good for my deliverance because God is in charge of my life and not everything else. Not the prison guard, not the Roman Empire, but God is the one 
that is in charge of my life. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So life is about perspective. And I want you to have this perspective that God is in charge of this situation. He's sitting on the throne. Worries and fear basically come from the fact that we are still sitting on the throne of our own heart. But when we relegate the throne and allow God to sit on the throne and be in charge of the life, fear and worries will never dominate your life. Concern, yes. Careful, yes. But never fear, never worries. Someone say that I'm thankful to God for the taxes I pay because it means I'm employed. I'm thankful that I have a lawn that I need mowing, windows that need cleaning, and gutters that need fixing because it means I have a home. I'm thankful for the spot I find at the far end of the parking lot because it means I'm capable of walking. I'm thankful for my, for my heating bill because it means I'm warm. I'm thankful for all the complaining I hear about our government because it means we have freedom of speech. I'm thankful for the lady behind me in church who sings off-key because it means that I can hear. I'm thankful for the piles of laundry and ironing because it means my loved ones are nearby. Unless it's all yours, you pile up for two weeks. <laughs> I'm thankful for the alarm that goes off in the morning hours because it means that I'm alive today. I'm thankful for the aching muscles at the end of the day because it means I have been productive. Unless you suffer from arthritis and all that, uh, that's a different story. But the point of this person writing is that perspective. We need to have a proper perspective. None uh, inspired me more than Arthur Ashe, the winner of three Grand Slam titles in tennis. And the uh, US Open tennis, the stadium is known as Arthur Ashe Stadium, named after him. He contracted HIV during a blood transfusion for his second heart surgery. He died in 1993 at the age of just 49 from AIDS-related pneumonia. And in his memoirs, he wrote the following insightful words that I want to read to you. This is what he said, quote, Quite often, people who mean well inquire of me whether I ever ask myself in the face of my diseases, why me? Arthur S. said, I never do. I never ask this question. Because he said, if I ask why me, as I am assaulted by heart disease and AIDS, then I must ask, why me about my blessings and question my right to enjoy them? The morning after I won Wimbledon in 1975, he said, I should have asked God, why me? And doubted that I deserve the victory. And so his conclusion was, if I don't ask why me after my victories, I cannot ask why me after my setbacks and disasters. Is it a good perspective? I think it's a beautiful perspective to life. And so I want you to know that you need to have a good perspective to this situation that is happening. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Uh, you may ask question why the God has allowed this kind of thing to happen that caused so much chaos and death and all that. John Wenham. He wrote a book called The Goodness of God in his uh, 
introduction, he says this. He says, history has its long tail of man's inhumanity to men. Spain had its inquisition. Britain its Atlantic slave trade. Germany its gas chambers. Russia's its Siberian labor camps or the gulag. The world is still swept by fear and lust and greed and tension. Nature's too, nature too seems twisted. Babies are born deformed. They, they, inherited, they inherit diseases and tendencies to insanity. Ours is a world of praying animals, parasites, viruses, and deadly bacteria. The Bible itself raises the question. It records tyranny, cruelty, mutilation, eyes gouged out, hands lopped off, deceit, war. Not only war, but God sent war. Even Assyria, one of the cruelest nations of history, is called the rod of God's anger. Is God love? Well, easy answer could not possibly be right. We must realize we are all children. We are fools. We are self-considered stiff-necked rebels who will get everything wrong unless we are willing to give up telling God what He should be like and what He should do. And I think He's right. God is love. That is what Scripture says. That is what is true. And God defines what love is, not you and I. He defines it by His kindness. He defines it by His generosity, His goodness, and His redemptive grace. And all that those difficulties tell us is that what sin has done and they provide a background for us to understand the greatness of God's love. So my friend, we need to have a perspective. Fear, worries, as I said, dominate our life when we have not completely abdicated the throne of our own hearts. Once we are ready to let God be the one who reigns and sit on the throne of our hearts, fears and worries become not a major concern in your life because you know He is in charge he is in control. So the first thing I want you to, to uh, take home this morning, how to respond is, is perspective. A good, godly perspective that He's sovereign, He's in charge. And the second point I want to give to you is the word letter R, P-R. Uh, I want to convince you that God is your refuge. God is your refuge. Refuge. I just read to you Psalms 46 a while ago. Uh, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The Hebrew word for the word trouble that is used means press in, confined in the tight space. And that is the kind of pressure the psalmist is talking about. When life presses in upon us, when trouble comes, then we can know that we have a place to run to because God is our refuge and strength. It does not matter what form the trouble takes or how it is delivered or how long it stays. God alone is our accessible, protected place of refuge and retreat. We can hide there and know that nothing can get through to us unless it goes through Him first. Let me read to you some Bible verses. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27 says this, The eternal God is your refuge. 
and underneath are the everlasting arms. Psalms 57 verse 1. Psalms 57 verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Why? For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. The scripture tells us that we can hide in Him. Psalms 27 verse 5, uh, Pastor Caroline read that as well. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and He will set me high upon a rock. Psalm 62 verse 5 to 8. Find rest, O my souls, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. One more. Proverbs 18 verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Remember the song that we used to sing in Sunday school? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. God is your refuge. When you're hard pressed in tight space, God is your refuge. You can run to Him. You can hide to, in Him. And then verse 2 and 3 say, you say God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in terms of travel. Because God is your refuge and strength, He said, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, look at that, though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Three things, earth, mountains, waters. He said, when God is your refuge, even when the earth give way, even when the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, even when the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, even then you know that God is your refuge. The Psalmists probably have plenty of reason to be afraid. In verse 2, you say, give way, the mountain give way, it refers to something being changed in such dramatic fashion that it could be said to have been removed and something else put in place. It has totally collapsed. Sometimes life feels like that. Collapse. Mountains. He described the mountains falling into the heart of the sea. He uses a word there that describes something which was apparently immovable, suddenly being toppled. And so it is that in our lives sometimes the things we thought we could depend on, the things which were apparently immovable and dependable are suddenly discovered to be just the opposite. We lean on them and then they topple over. And then the sea, raw, a word that means tumultuous. It has the idea of something being shaken or moved in a violent manner so as to crush or destroy that the like the waves of the sea beating against the base of a cliff with enough force and regularity that the cliff eventually erodes and falls into the sea like the 
Great Ocean Road. It used to be 12 apostles. If you go now, probably left seven, you know. It fell. The word foam means to boil. It is used in lamentation. They say, oh Lord, how distressed I am. I'm in torment within and in my heart I'm disturbed. So, I want to encourage you that God is your refuge despite of all these things, this dramatic thing that some is painted, the, the worst case, the, 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 the most stable things that fell apart, God is your refuge. St. Teresa of Avila says, Let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God is unchanging. Patience gains all. Nothing is lacking to those who have God. And God alone is sufficient. And then as you go down to chapter 46, verse 10 and 11, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Most people often only emphasize on the word be still. But pay attention to this. The psalmist never says just be still. He said be still, right? True, it says be still because the word means to abandon, to relax, to stop striving. It means to sink in as one might relax and just sink into your chair. And especially now, probably a lot more sinking to do. It pictures a soldier who puts down his weapons to stop his fighting, who lets down his defenses, who relaxes his entire body because the danger has passed. So we can see clearly now that being still before God is a very active step of faith. If you're frantically trying to create and change things, it only Reveal that fear is the one that is controlling and not faith. As I said, but the verse doesn't just tell us to be still, which most of us only concentrate on. It also tells us to know that, be still and know that He is God. It includes the idea of acknowledging that He is God and all that means. And since He is God, that means He is great and above all comprehensions. It means that He is sovereign He's absolutely perfect in His dealings with us. It means that there's nothing which escapes His notice and there is nothing which is beyond His ability. So my friend, this is the second thing that I want to bring to you uh, today. Not just only you need to have a proper perspective to this whole issues that God is still in charge, but you must know that God is your refuge. You can go to Him. When you panic, don't panic. I know some of us, we are panicking, we are crippling with fear and it's dominating our lives, uh, but God is your refuge. God is your strength. God is your ever-present help in times of trouble. Let me move now to my final point. Uh, your perspective, that God is your refuge. I want to present to you opportunities. You know, my friend, I believe that this is the best time for us Christians to shine. This is the best time. This is the great opportunity presented to us to calm people's fears and point them to Jesus. 
you have a common topic to talk about. You can go morning walk and you can cross people's path. You know, I heard some one WhatsApp group, someone was uh, working and, and this person was saying, uh, uh, very scared, you know, and then she, she was a Christian, she just passed by and said, pray in Chinese, pray. This is a wonderful opportunity presented to us Christians. Just by the way you handle this crisis itself is a strong, powerful testimony to your loved ones who are non-believers. That itself is a strong testimony. Psalm 72, oh, maybe more than that, this was written in 1940. Uh, C.S. Lewis was responding. People asking him, so now how shall we live because of the atomic bomb and all that? And, 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 and in 1940s, this is what C.S. Lewis said in 1940 when they were, the, the threat was atomic bomb. This is what he said. He said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year? Or as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raid, raiders, raid, raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, yes, we say, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed, indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors. Anesthetics. He said, 1940, right? But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. And then he went on to say, this is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human beings, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, Bathing the children, chatting with our friends over a pie and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. But of course, he writes in a different context in the 1940s of an atomic bomb. Uh, but the point is taken that God in charge, and we have in front of us great opportunity to do wonderful things in this time. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says, Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Why? He said, making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are even making the most of every opportunity that is presented to us. And I think God has given to us this great opportunity. 
great opportunity where people start to contemplate about death. People think about the possibility that they might contract and, and suffer and all that kind of thing. It is a great opportunity. They say that death is the best teacher and unfortunately it comes a little bit late. But however, now is the time for us, forcing us to contemplate and think about that. Many people are in that situation and it is a great opportunity for us Christians to shine a light to people. Uh, last Wednesday at a prayer meeting, uh, Pastor Caroline read to us a prayer which uh, many of you uh, in your small group has forwarded to, to uh, many people. And I saw that on the computer as well, Facebook and all that, that stuff. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer that I want to read to you, uh, which I think is, is very appropriate. To you say a prayer in times of a pandemic. Say, may we who are merely inconvenienced remember those whose lives are at stake. May we who have no risk factors remember those most vulnerable. May we who have the luxury of working from home remember those who must choose between preserving their health or making their rent. May we who have the flexibility to care for our children when their schools close remember those who have no such options. May we who have to cancel our trips remember those that have no place to go. May we who are losing our margin money in the share markets, in the turmoil of the economic market, remember those who have no margin at all. May we who settle in for a quarantine at home, remember those who have no home. As fear grips our country, let us choose love. During this time, when we cannot physically wrap our arms around each other, let us find ways to be the loving embrace of God to our neighbors. Seize every opportunity that God presented to us. Someone from the first service this week uh, came into the church and she told me that she went to Woolworths one morning and, uh, and she saw one lady, Lady A, snatching something from Lady B that she already have. So Lady A snatched it from her right in front of her eyes. And she said, I am always a timid person. But for whatever reason at that point, I stood up for Lady B. I looked at the Lady A and said, you return it back to her. If not, I'm going to report to the management. And she's an elderly person. And she did that to her. And Lady A quietly returned it to Lady B. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to stand up when that kind of things happen. And I know of someone deliberately buy toilet paper to give to someone. Uh, rather than stocking uh, all at home and deprive others who did not stock up, who keep to the rule and, and try to do that. I haven't bought a row of um, toilet paper that I'm still, I, I still have. <laughs> Thank God that my wife bought 48 rows before the crisis came about. We never bought that much toilet paper. For whatever reason, she bought 48 rows and we are still using that and it's still okay. So, uh, so don't have to stock up. Uh, plenty to go around. 
So God presented to us great opportunity during this time to shine for Him. Anne Frank, uh, in 1944, was only 12 years old. During the Holocaust time, she kept a diary. And the book is called Diary of a Young Girl. Tuesday, March 7, 1944. This is what she recorded during the Holocaust in 1944. She said this. She said, at such moments, I don't think about the misery, but about the beauty that still remains. 12 years old. This is where mother and I differ greatly, she said. Because my mother's advice in the face of melancholy is, think about all the suffering in the world and be thankful you're not part of it. I don't think mother's advice can be right. Because what are you supposed to do if you become part of the suffering? You'll be completely lost. On the contrary, she said, beauty remains even in misfortune. If you just look for it, you discover more and more happiness and regain your balance. A person who is happy will make others happy. A person who has courage and faith will never die in misery. Such profound insight of a 12-year-old girl in 1944 in the midst of crisis, in the midst of Holocaust. Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I do not want to try to over-explain it. And then he further on by saying, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Paul probably was on fire the day he paced the room and dictated those words to a secretary whose hand must have trembled in awe as he jotted it all down. Are you sure, Paul? You sure you're saying this? He must be trembling, writing those words. Because it's been said that Paul does often dictate because he has, he has uh, this uh, weakness. That's why uh, the thorn in the flesh, the mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and most scholars say the thorn in the flesh is his eye problem because when Jesus, when God appeared, Jesus appeared to him in Damascus Road, his eyes was affected and he can't really uh, see very clearly. Imagine he can see clearly. Your New Testament might be that thick. So thank God that he has eye problem. He wrote only 13 books. Otherwise, you have 130 books maybe. Um, but he was the one who says that in the midst of those struggles. My friend, you have great opportunities during this time of crisis. The opportunity presented to us as believers to calm people's fear, to live confidently, and even, I may say, joyfully, knowing that the Lord is in charge, knowing that He is our refuge, He is our strength, He is our ever-present help, in times of need. During crisis time, your character shines the most. If you blend in like the others, then you are no different. God has presented to you wonderful opportunity. Nelson Mandela, uh, in one of his books called Long Walk to Freedom, he says this about the apartheid, if I pronounce correctly. Uh, formerly, the official government policy of racial segregation. He wrote it in fantastic perspective 
to this. He says this. He said, the policy of apartheid created a deep and lasting wound in my country and my people. All of us will spend many years, if not generations, recovering from that profound hurt. But the decades of oppression and brutality had another unintended effect. And that was that it produced men of such extraordinary courage, wisdom, and generosity that their like may never be made known again. And he said, perhaps, perhaps it requires such depth of oppression to create such heights of character. Wise word. And it's during crisis time that you and I can shine the brightest. Brightest. And we must capture it on this opportunity that is given to us. God works through this. And so, my friend, this is my sermon to you this morning. How should you respond as a Christian? I want to challenge you to have a proper perspective that God is sovereign, God is in charge, not coronavirus. I want you to know that God is your refuge, God is your comfort. You can go to Him when you're fearful, when you are uh, troubled, when you're worried about your future. You can go to Him, you can hide in Him. He is your refuge, He is your strength. And then lastly, oh, I want to let you know and challenge you to stir your hearts to make use of these great opportunities that we have, that God has presented to us. And you will respond like a pro, like a pro as a believer, as a disciple of Christ. I hope you have not tuned out. Let me just close with this. There was a story that came out in the First World War. It's a true story. One such story tells of two friends in World War I. They were so close, they were inseparable. They had enlisted together, they had trained together, they suffered together, they were shipped overseas together, they fought side by side in the trenches. And during an attack, one of the men was critically wounded in a field filled with barbed wires, obstacles. And he was unable to crawl back to his foxhole. And the entire area was under a withering enemy crossfire. And it was suicidal to even try to reach out to him or rescue him. Yet his friend decided to try. But before he could get out of his own trench, his sergeant shouted at him and yanked him back inside and ordered him not to go because it's just too dangerous. It's too late, he said. You can't do him any good and you probably only get yourself killed if you go. And a few minutes later, this guy, when the sergeant turned his back, and instantly the man was gone after his friend. And a few minutes later, he staggered back, mortally wounded, with his friend now dead in his arms. And the sergeant was both angry but at the same time, deeply moved. 
And he said, what a waste. What a waste. He's dead and you are dying. It just wasn't worth it. And this man with almost his last breath, uh, the dying man simply replied, oh, he said, yes, sergeant. It was worth it. Because when I got to him, the only thing he said was, I knew you would come. He said, I knew you would come. Of course, that is a story of a true marks of a friend that when there is every reason for him not to be, when to be there is sacrificially costly, we still do it. And there is Jesus, sacrificially come for you and die for you. If you always come to church every Sunday and you have never, never give your heart to Jesus, never surrender to Him, never invite Him to sit on the throne of your heart, you never. Maybe today is a wonderful opportunity for you to do that. Because he died for you, he saves you from your sin, and your eternity is secure, and you never have to fear death or anything that is in front of us. May you give your heart to Jesus and come to him today. May we pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this manner that we can share our time together as body of Christ. We are called to a witness of strength, courage and faith, and to be a calm, non-anxious presence in times of fear. Thank you, Lord. May we respond like a pro. May we know and have a proper perspective as a believer, to know that you are sovereign, you are in charge. May we know that you are our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble, in times when we are pressing, confined. And may we know as believers, this is a time of opportunities. This is a great time that we can use these opportunities to point people to Jesus Christ, to calm their fears. Thank you, Lord. In the days ahead, help us to be careful, to take care, to be cautious, but never be crippled by fear, never be paralyzed by fear, but let our faith rise up as we live courageously in this challenging time. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We thank you. May the love of God enfold you. May the light of God surround you. May the power of God protect you. May the presence of God watch us over you. Wherever you are, 
God is with you now and forevermore. Amen.